you have a Bible handy, uh, open it with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Hold your place there and go to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to actually start there and then come back to 1 Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians 1 and then Matthew 13. Took a break last week from our studies in 2 Thessalonians as we looked at the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, Actually, it was the the parable of the lost things, because in Luke 15, there are three parables, but one parable, uh, the lost uh, sheep, and then the lost coin, and then the lost son. All of them covered there, and we specifically centered on the parable of the prodigal, uh, the, the lost son. So in that, we talked about the purpose of parables, uh, how they, it's a parallel story. It means to lay down alongside of, that's what the word means. And that it would be that Jesus, when he would tell parables, he would lay down a, a parallel story side by side with a spiritual reality. And so it, it, you'll see it, as you study the parables, very often he would say the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he would launch into a parable. We'll look at that here this morning. We also looked at the purpose of parables is twofold. First of all, they reveal truth to those who believe. Secondly, they conceal truth from those who do not. So I want to begin this morning with another parable uh, here in Matthew 13, which has a direct application, a direct bearing uh, upon the things that we're looking at here in 2 Thessalonians. In Matthew 13, we see the parable of the wheat and the tares. This is right on the tail end of Jesus telling the parable of the prodigal son. We looked at Luke 15, but it's also in Matthew 13, uh, the, the prodigal. But as we look at this, we're going to see that there are direct parallels. And I want you to understand, as we go through, especially when we get back into Second Thessalonians, that you're going to see that there are striking parallels between what Jesus said back then And here, a couple of decades later, what the Apostle Paul is laying out for the Thessalonians here. So uh, I think that the the parallels, again, the parallels will be striking and obvious as we go. So jumping right in to Matthew 13, in verse 24, it says, uh, and Matthew is saying, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, there's that term, a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, I've got a couple of slides here. This first one, it shows a comparison between wheat on the left and what's known as the bearded darnel, or, or darnel, it's, it was a, a weed, essentially, that's a member of the ryegrass family. Uh, but there was a distinct difference. The, the difference being, as we see in slide two, that Darnell produced a poisonous seed. Now, imagine a field with both of these plants mixed together. It would be pretty hard to go through and to pick out the wheat from the weeds. So, in verse 26, he says, But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Now, these tares, again, uh, the, the Greek word is, is zizanion, and it's a specific plant, a specific poisonous plant that looks like wheat. So these tares appear. Verse 27, so the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? 
Now, what are the weeds doing here? <laughs> How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. And the servant said to him, do you want us to then go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat, uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, he says. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So he tells this parable. And now further on, ending there in verse 30, in verses 31 to 33, Jesus launches into another couple of parables that we are not going to take the time to look at this morning. The parable of the mustard seed, having faith like a mustard seed. And the parable of the leaven, leaven being symbolic in the New Testament of sin. Again, don't have time for those. I want to drop down and go to verse 34 now in Matthew 13, because in Matthew's, now it's Matthew's narrative talking about, under the inspiration of the Spirit, about prophecy as it relates to the parables. He says, in all these things, Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Interesting. Quoting Psalm 78 there. The reason I believe that Matthew was led to insert this here in this section was immediately he goes into the parable of the the tares, and Jesus' explanation of the parable of the tares And he goes into Jesus giving a prophetic explanation. He is deep into prophecy. He is talking about the end of the age. Verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. And he answered and he said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now he's going to give every aspect of this parable, he's going to say that this is what it represents. This is the, 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 you're looking at this story. Now I've laid that down. So now I'm going to tell you what it represents in, in reality. So he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Hold on to that too. He says, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Hold on to angels as well. We're going to see that here in second Thess. And they'll cast them into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he, he, and he ends this with the, it's seemingly cryptic, but it's really not. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a constant prayer of mine. Lord, give me ears to hear. Often when I pray, when I open a service here, Lord, give me ears to hear, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Because we want to discern these things through spiritual ears, spiritual eyes. So, Back into Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Now the last time as we began the second letter that God had inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Thessalonica, we saw that he had written this letter for three primary reasons. 
Remember, in Thessalonica, tremendous persecution of Christians had broken out after the church had been established. Keep that in mind as we go along. These people were under it. Somehow, in the three or so months that had gone by since Paul had sent his first letter, word of increasing suffering, persecution, had come back to him. We don't know if it was through a letter that came back to him. We don't know if it was a courier. We don't know. But it's only been three months since First Thessalonians went out. That first letter that he sent went out. And now word has come back to him. Things are really bad in Thessalonica. However, they're bearing up pretty well. Look at that too as we go along. So first of all, he wrote this second letter to encourage them in the midst of the persecution and all the difficulties and the trials that they were facing. Secondly, he wrote this letter to clear up some confusion that was coming about with this church because a forged letter had gone out uh, circulated from false teachers claiming that it was Paul that had written it. And in the letter there, it claimed that because of the persecution, the suffering, the trials that they were going through, that that was an indicator that they were now in the day of the Lord, that this was God's wrath being poured out. And that just wasn't the the case. It wasn't so. And so Paul is writing to them saying, wait, 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 no, no, no. This is, you're going through it because you're going through it. You're going through it because people hate the light. You're not going through it because God's wrath is being poured out. He had already told them in his first letter and laid out the sequence of end times events there. But they had become confused and and they were concerned. And so he's writing this letter back to clear up that confusion. Finally, there were some in the church that (laughs) were uh, had just become slackers. People that had said, well, the Lord's coming back, so I'm just going to kick my feet up here and uh, I'm going to wait for his return. I'm not going to even go to work. I'm just going to hang back and just let it happen. They had become a real weight on the church. And so word had come back to him that these guys, you know, we've got to get these guys, <laughs> got to get them motivated here. <laughs> what if the Lord doesn't come back? We just can't have these guys living off of everybody else, essentially sucking off the church and dragging us down. So he writes this letter partly to address that. And later in this letter, in the third chapter, he's going to address that. So as we pick up the text today, uh, by way of review, we'll look at verses three and four, because Paul had written to them, in light of the suffering, in light of the persecution, in light of the difficulties that you have, he says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards one another, towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So Paul puts a strong emphasis on two things here. Essentially, he says, in the midst of all that you're going through, in light of all of the difficulty you have, your faith is growing. And not only is your faith growing, but your love is abounding. Remember, these are people that they had only been Christians for, uh, by this time, it had only been a little over a year since Paul had planted that church. Remember, he planted the church in Thessalonica. He was there for three Sabbaths, the book of Acts tells us. He was driven out. They were, he was a hunted man and he had to leave. Put Timothy back in his place and take care of, nurture the church while I'm gone. So now here he is in Corinth a year later, and he's writing back to these people for the second time. 
So they're only a year old spiritually. They didn't have a lot of background. They didn't have a lot of history. They didn't have a big foundation other than they knew that their life had radically changed when they came out of pagan idolatry and embraced Christ. So as they were persevering, we looked at that last time, they're going through extreme challenges. Overall, Paul says, you're doing well as a church. So well that he would boast about them to uh, in his interactions with other churches, people from other churches who he came across. So we'll pick up today in verse 5 as Paul continues. He says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now, that's a little bit difficult, that verse to parse through in the New King James. I'm going to read it in the, in the New American Standard. I, I think it does a better job. Verse 5 in the NASB says, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Now, he's not talking about worthiness unto salvation. Again, that's a gift. That's free. What he's talking about is because you're walking with the Lord, because you're going through these difficulties, because your, your faith is being stretched and you're being challenged, you're worthy of walking through these things for the kingdom of God. That's your suffering because you're a believer. So first of all, their patience and their faith in the midst of the persecution was evidence that they were genuine believers. On the other hand, again, going back to Matthew 13, in the parable of the sower, Jesus says in verse 20, he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So according to Jesus, this is evidence that those in this parable were not genuine believers. Folks, there are four conditions of the human heart outlined in the parable of the sower. Only one, only the one that goes on to bear fruit is the one that the root goes down and and who receives the word in fertile ground. The others are people that are sort of false starts. As we look at this, we see God was working through the Thessalonians' suffering. That's the point that he's making. As a result of the trust that they placed in him, And through their abounding love for one another, God was growing and maturing these people in their faith. That's very often what God does with us. He allows things into our lives. He stretches us. He allows us to go through trials and hardships at times. And there are times where we don't understand it. There are times where we won't understand it on this side of heaven, but he will use it in our lives. Their standing firm in the midst of their affliction was proof of their genuine faith in God. It wasn't what produced their faith in God, but it was a response to the relationship that they had. They were standing firm because they were standing in Christ. So he's essentially telling them that going through severe trials as believers was compelling evidence that one day they were going to experience future glory. And folks, that's the same for us. We go through things, don't we? We go through challenges. We go through hard times. We go through times that, that, again, we don't understand, but we also know that this isn't the end of it. We're going to talk about that more as we go along. Verse 6, he says, since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. It's the same root word there. He's saying, essentially, God's going to balance the scales. 
If people are giving you trouble, God's going to give them trouble. He's going to repay with trouble those who trouble you, is literally what it says. So as Christians, when things get tough, or when we look around, we see growing corruption. I mean, I look out, and I, I there are times where I scratch my head. Uh, I look at all of the injustice. I look at the sorrow. I look at the pain. Uh, as I mentioned, the corruption, suffering at the hands of evil people. Sometimes we begin to wonder, don't we? Sometimes we can begin to say, I don't understand all of this. Lord, what is going on? In Jeremiah chapter 12, Jeremiah uh, is asking the same question that I sometimes ask. There, Jeremiah says, righteous are you, O Lord. He begin- I love the way he begins this because he's not saying, and, and I, folks, I believe that there's a difference between why, why, Lord, why, and why. I, I don't understand this. I, I, I use that tone, I, I accent that tone on purpose because there are times where we say, why, Lord, why? And Jeremiah, he's honestly saying, Lord, why? I, I don't understand this. He's not calling God on the carpet. He says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why, Lord? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? And those are questions that I look out and there, there are times that I'm asking that same question. Lord, why? I, this is, I see people, uh, lives being destroyed. I see you know, parts of this world where it's absolutely perilous to be a Christian, to be a believer. Why? When are you going to wrap all of this up? Folks, we've got to understand in light of these things that, it, uh, you know what? You've got to get that everything will not continue as it is indefinitely. There is an end to it. And Paul's talking about that with these people here. He's telling the Thessalonians that, and and also by extension, you and I, for a Christ-rejecting world, a time of reckoning will come. It's not a maybe. It will happen. It will come. Now, by the way, when God's judgment finally happens, it won't be some uncontrolled explosion of anger where he gets, you know, God doesn't lose his temper. He's not like me or you, where we get to a certain point, it's like, hey, I've had it, you know, (laughs) the temper flies. That's not how he's going to judge. We need to understand that his, his judgment, it's a righteous judgment from a holy God. And it is perfectly just. He is perfectly just that he will recompense evil, that he will judge those who have willfully violated and rejected him until their final breath. He leaves that door open. Uh, I was reading something the other day, and I was just blessed about people who were rejecting the Lord and and that, that he was still appealing to them in grace up until that time where he called for them to give an account. So here, God's word reminds us the time is coming where God will pour out his wrath on all who have defied him, on all who have rejected him and live their lives in opposition to him. Folks, it will happen. Now that leads us to what Paul goes on to say in verse 7, where he says, and to you, to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He's saying, look, this isn't going to be forever. Understand that Jesus is the coming judge. He will come and he will judge. And you will have rest when he returns. Now, for the Thessalonians, 
the rest that they could experience was in the hope that they had at his coming. We know that he didn't come in their lifetimes, obviously. And Paul's writing this, he's saying, fix your hope on him. Fix your hope on his coming. And we know that he didn't come in their lifetimes. Does that mean that we don't now fix our hope on his coming? Absolutely not. Looking forward to the rapture of the church, looking forward to the second coming of Christ to avenge those who have persecuted them would have given the Thessalonians divine perspective. And that's what it's about. We need to have that type of a perspective in our lives. It would have encouraged them to persevere. It would have encouraged them to keep the faith. It would have, he's telling them, take your focus off of your circumstances and keep your focus on the Lord. That's where your life is going to be transformed. And that's where you're going to find resolution to the issues in your life that you're going through. You may not find them in your circumstances, but you can find them in Christ. You can find them in the knowledge that it will not always be this way, that he will recompense evil. He will wrap all of this up. In verse 7, we also see his mighty angels. He talks about that, that they'll accompany him. Now, as we saw in Matthew 13, angels are ministering spirits that are, they, they, come, they accompany Christ in his return. They're sent by God to accomplish his purposes. And in this scenario, they'll be used by him to gather the wicked for judgment. I want to go a bit further with this. We see in verse 7, he says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. Now that word, the word revealed, is the same word that we have for the title of the last book of the Bible. Revelation. It's the exact same word. The the Greek word is apocalypsis. And it's where we get the word apocalypse from. But it it doesn't mean some apocalyptic event. What it means is to uncover or to unveil or to reveal. He's talking about Christ being revealed in his second coming. Both here and in Revelation 1, I want to, this gets into sort of a pet peeve of mine. It is the singular revelation or the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. It is not plural. I was talking to somebody there, I think it was one of the guys, he had a book, I think it was from Jonathan Kahn or something, some some book, and he said, what do you think about this? And and he was reading the flyleaf, he was talking about, in the book of Revelations, and I said, well, I'm done. (laughs) He can't even get the word right. It's not plural. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ in glory. And folks, if you get that right, you've got a gold star from me. So <laughs> I just, when I hear people say, oh, I was looking at Revelations, I, 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 I'm going to be polite. I'm going to be polite. <laughs> but anyway, it, it is singular. So when Jesus came the first time, his deity, that would, and what that means is his godness, essentially as God, that's what deity means, that his deity was veiled in human flesh in the first coming. When he comes a second time, his deity, his power, his glory will be on full display. It will be unmistakable and he will not come because the first time he comes as a suffering servant, the second time he comes as a conquering king and he comes in power. And all of that, yeah, he still has a body. He's still a man, fully man, fully God, but he comes 
And it's, it will be a different thing altogether to experience him coming in power and great glory. At that moment, the entire world will see the power, the glory of the sovereign God of the universe, the unveiling, the, the uncovering. It'll be unmistakable when Jesus returns. Every eye will see, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and folks, there is a time coming where an unbelieving world will be faced with a reckoning that they have until now rejected out of hand as being fairy tales and fables. Not so. What Paul is revealing, what he's unveiling here in verse 7, is the return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. What they thought he was going to do the first time, his men thought that he was coming to establish his kingdom, to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, and to to throw off the yoke of the Romans, and that they were just going to la-la-la, go along. They had no concept that he didn't come to save them from the Romans. He came to save them from themselves. He came to save them from sin. He comes to save us from ourselves, to save us from sin. So think about it too. As we look back at the first advent, at the first coming, Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies, or nearly 300. It's right around there somewhere. Different people write different things. But the the prophecies that had to do with his first coming. Okay, so looking back, that's what we see. Looking forward, we see that his second coming is promised. We see his second coming is indicated. We see passages like this that clearly talk about it. You can rest assured with a 100% record of accuracy in prophetic fulfillment of his first coming that he will fulfill every single prophecy that deals with his second. Talking about it himself in Matthew 13, in other places, many other places, Paul talking about it here, and it lines up perfectly with what Jesus said there. He says in verse 8, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So throughout the the scripture, flames or fire are connected to the judgment of God. You think about fire having a purifying effect, uh, a cleansing effect, and that's what the judgment of God will be when God judges the world, when he judges a Christ-rejecting world. So when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, going back to verse 7, he will gather the elect who will experience blessing and rest. But here in verse 8, the angels working on Jesus' behalf will be gathering unbelievers for judgment. So Jesus speaks of the same thing in Matthew thirteen forty-one that we read earlier uh, as we look at the parable of the tares. There he says in verse 41, the Son of Man, just reading it again, the Son of Man will send out his angels. And they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. He's referring to judgment. When a world that has rejected God and ultimately they will come to stand before him. Also in verse 8, we see that punishment falls on two groups. The first group that we see here are those who do not know God. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't believe this is referring to simple ignorance. I'm not talking about somebody who, you know, <laughs> a child who has never had the ability to process 
the existence of God. I, I believe that this refers to those who don't know him because they have willfully, and that's the key word, neglected, refused the knowledge that God has offered to them. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, push it down, in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Christ rejecting. The point here is that no one lives in total ignorance of God or without the knowledge of God because God has revealed himself through creation itself. But when the wicked choose to willfully reject the knowledge of God. Paul says they choose to suppress that knowledge of God because they want to reject the God whose creation it is. That's why, folks, I'll tell you what, if you don't have an accurate understanding of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, that sets the stage for everything that comes after. Uh, I remember Stacey and I went to a church one time where the guy totally thrashed the doctrine of man. Oh, man, he's basically good. He just kind of goofs up every now and then. And and I remember walking out of that church and kind of telling her quietly, we're not coming back here. (laughs) Because it's important. What we believe is important. What is set there is that, that he is the author of creation. He is the author of our lives. And he sets in motion things there that come to bear throughout the entire rest of the word of God. Here's the second group that he talks about here. Those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a group that has received greater light. These are people that have heard the gospel of Christ and rejected it. They refuse to believe the gospel, which means they refuse to turn from their sins, receive the gift of salvation through Jesus' death on that cross. In their disobedience, They arrogantly, stubbornly reject the true and living God. As a result, God will take vengeance on those who choose not to come, who choose to reject. The point here is for those in either of these groups who refuse to come to Jesus as Savior, they will one day come to know him as judge. These are sobering, sobering passages that we're looking at. And folks, you know how we roll here. We're going we're gonna to look at the easy stuff and the tough stuff and everything in between. This is tough stuff. I'll tell you what. In verse 9, he says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What he's talking about here, this is hell. I wish it wasn't written this way. I wish that there was some other way to preach this. I, I mean... I don't want to see people perish, but it's the Lord's way. He doesn't either, but he's a holy God and there must be a recompense for rebellion and sin against him. I want to define a couple of terms here from verse nine as we go forward. Uh, The word everlasting here, it describes the never ending expulsion from God's presence. The never ending expulsion from the presence of God. Destruction here, 
I, I studied with a group in my in my ten years search for God uh, that uh, the 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 Watchtower Bible and Tract Society <laughs> for about a year. Uh, before I came to the Lord, before I got serious, went back into the, the Mormon church and all that stuff I went through. Anyway, they were annihilationists. They said, oh, no, no, no. At the end of it all, God's just going to annihilate everybody that doesn't belong to him, everybody that's rejected him. They just will cease to exist. I do not see that in God's word anywhere. I see passages that indicate quite the opposite. This is one of them. Destruction doesn't refer to annihilation or cessation of existence. It refers to exclusion, banishment, separation. That's what the essence of hell will be like. Separated from God in torment for eternity with no chance of going back the other direction. They won't cease to exist, but they'll experience everlasting punishment, suffering, Revelation 14.11 tells us there will be no rest there, day and night. Jesus said in Matthew 25.46, speaking of unbelievers, they will go away into everlasting punishment. You know, one of the things that that I was being taught by the the people that were, (laughs) the cessation, that man stops existing, was, was that, well, you know, they would explain away hell by saying, well, you know, Jesus used the word Gehenna. Well, and that was a garbage dump in Jerusalem, and it was like in the Valley of Gehenna, there was a, the dump, and that's where the sulfur was being used on the trash, you know, fire and brimstone, that's where that term comes from and all of that. And that was true. But Jesus, remember, he lays down, he lays down a story along a spiritual truth And I don't know what he was talking about when he talked about hell, but he wasn't talking about the dump any more than he's talking about a field with wheat and weeds in it. You got to understand he's going somewhere with this and that he's talking about a place of eternal torment. In Matthew 25, we also see that there are angels involved there when the Lord comes back. They're coming back with Jesus when the people from the nations will be separated as the sheep are separated from the goats. And if you look at the, the separation of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, that is not final judgment. That is not sinners and, and saints being separated there in the large sense of the word. What it's a reference to is the separation of those living on the earth during the time that Christ returns. The sheep going one direction, the goats to the other. The sheep are those that didn't die during the great tribulation, trusted in Christ. The goats are separated for judgment, but that comes later. The bema seat, where we get our rewards, that's where, you know, we are given a crown of righteousness and we just throw that back at the feet of Jesus because we know it was his righteousness that we were able to have, do anything that counted at all. That's later. The great white throne of judgment where final judgment will happen, that's later. When it talks about the separation of the sheep and goats, of the sheep and the goats, that is at the end of the tribulation when people, the sheep didn't, the, the ones that didn't die during the great tribulation, the ones that trusted in Christ, they're separated from those who did not. So I want to read verse 9 again. Let's read verse 9 and 10 together because they go together. Uh, it just makes more sense that way. He says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, 
when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. So verse 10 here is speaking of the time when Jesus returns to the earth. Now I want you to understand in the rapture, we go with the Lord comes for his church. And, and that's and so the church is taken out at that time. Been in heaven enjoying him. In the second coming, we come with the Lord. We don't he doesn't he comes for the church in, in, in the rapture, he comes with the church in the second coming. So we're coming along with him at this point. So he's going to return with the church, set up his millennial kingdom at that time. And we read here to be glorified in his people. What is he talking about there? Uh, in other words, we see that the glory of Jesus will be seen in his people in a manner that has never, ever been experienced before. Remember, we're coming back in glorified bodies. We don't have any clue what that looks like, but I believe it's a reference to all believers uh, through which the glory of God will shine somehow in this world. Uh, and I don't think it's only the church. I think that the Old Testament saints will be there, likely those who were martyred during the Great Tribulation. In verse 10 we read, and to be admired among all those who believe. The word admired here. It's an interesting word. It translates to stand in awe or to stand in wonderment. Uh, in our vernacular, it would be to be blown away. Man, that blows me away. That blows my mind. That's a back from when I was like, oh, wow, that blew my mind. But that's what he's talking. He's talking about something that is so powerful that it just it, it's just amazing. So my opinion on this, and, and I'm, this is my opinion, is this refers to those who have trusted Christ during the Great Tribulation and are alive when Jesus returns with his church. Think about it. It's likely, we don't know for sure, but it's likely that they haven't yet received their glorified bodies. And the things that they see when he returns will, in the truest sense of the word, inspire nothing short of awe and wonder. Amazing, amazing scenery there. So, Paul wraps up in this section here. He gives a word of encouragement to the Thessalonians. Remember, he's talking about all of this to the Thessalonians who are under it. They're suffering. They're going through it. He's saying, I want you to hang in there. Understand it's not going to always be this way. I know that things are very difficult. But he essentially says, you're going to be among those glorified saints because you believed when we came and preached the gospel of Jesus to you. So as we look at this, Three things I want to talk about as we wrap up. And I actually I actually made slides for these. I usually don't. <laughs> but I got a little carried away last night. The first is this. What is your perspective? Remember, the Thessalonians needed to have a divine perspective. Are you looking for his return? Even knowing that he may not come in your lifetime? I've been around people, folks, that are very cynical. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you want to know something? The Bible addresses that. Peter says that there, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Everything's been going as it was from the time of creation until now. I don't know what you call them, but God calls them mockers. It's important that we not become cynical about the Lord's return, even knowing that he might not come in our lifetime. Why? 
Because living our lives in an attitude of hope and expectancy changes us. It changes the way you think about things. It changes your worldview. It changes the way you view life. It changes the way that you invest your time. It changes us. We need to live in hope and expectancy of his return. And I believe soon return. But you want to know something? They've been saying soon return for a long, long time. Does that change the fact that I believe it's his soon return? No, it doesn't. And you guys know me, I, I, I am very fond of saying I am either going to go from this place feet first or head first. I really don't care. I just know that it ain't going to always be like this. So don't become cynical. Let your perspective be that of hope and expectation. The second thing here is a simple equation. Trials plus Jesus equals, and I have a question mark there, and that should not be a question mark for any of us, but I put it there because I was feeling ornery. (laughs) I wasn't. But the answer truly, folks, uh, there's only two answers. Going back to the parable of the sower, that the people that are being discussed there, you're either strengthened or you're withered. That was the case with Three of those four, they were withered. The, the, the seed did not take root. Allow that thing that you're going through to bring you closer to Jesus by allowing the roots, which is your commitment to him, to be strengthened. Uh, you know, after my daughter went to heaven, I did bereavement counseling for a while uh, because it was just something that was dear to my heart. And, and, and I understood, you know, I wanted to be with other parents that had lost a child and, and bring comfort and all But I realized that there were both groups there in these meetings. They were put on by the hospital district and all that, uh, kind of a secular group. There were people that uh, had gone through significant loss, and they were just mad at God. They they could not wrap their hands around why God did that, and they were very bitter. There were also people that drew near And my heart was to draw near. I mean, God, I don't just want you. I really need you right now. I am just a big pile of hurt. I'm a mess. And I need you. Both of those are true. Strengthened or withered. Allow the challenges that you go through. Allow the things that God allows into your life to strengthen you. That's what happened to the Thessalonians. Their faith was strengthened. Their love abounded. And that's the result. As our walk is strengthened, when we go through things, we have faith that's growing. And we have love that's abounding. Finally, last thing, the last uh, thing I want to look at here is I, I just put down, it's a wild ride, so hold on. And you ever get that sense, it's like, man, oh man, I just don't know what's going to come next. I mean, since about uh, midway through 2020, when I got up one morning and the, half the cities in America were on fire <laughs> and things were shifting every day, it's just like things are just spinning out of control and you see evil getting a grip. It's out in the open, it's unmasked and people coming after other people and all of the craziness. We just don't know what life is going to throw at us next. And that's just what we're looking out on. We don't know what's going to happen with our lives personally. We just don't have that understanding. We don't know who the next president of the United States is going to be. Ha ha. I knew I'd get some laughs on that. We don't know if some worldwide calamity will befall us tomorrow 
We don't know how much collateral damage Jesus is going to allow before he wraps all of this up. We don't know. We know that he allows hardship. We know that his ways are, are, are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're beyond our finding out, the Bible tells us. But we can know this. It's not going to always be this way. We can bank on the fact that he loves us with an everlasting love. And that if our life is hidden in the beloved, we don't have to worry. I'm going to say, be transparent with you a little bit on this. This is something I was thinking about. As I sometimes feel like I'm living my life somewhere between being a prophet of doom. Oh man, it's all a mess. We're all going to die. (laughs) And living with my head in the sand. What? What problem? Where? Where? Who? (laughs) What challenge? I don't say anything. But you know, I, I... I feel that way sometimes because I, on one hand, I don't want to be overreactive, going around looking for problems wherever, you know, oh my gosh, oh, that must be, the Jesus must be coming back today because this is, after all, that guy's saying it or whatever. I don't want to be doing that. I don't want to be that guy. But I also don't want to be asleep at the wheel. I want to have this word shape the way I look at life. I want to have his Holy Spirit instruct the way that I interact with the challenges when they come. Folks, you don't need me to tell you that we live in a world that is teetering. It's teetering politically, economically, socially, especially spiritually. The only solid thing that we can lean into and rely on is that Jesus is going to come and wrap all of this up. Praise God for that. It's guaranteed. Guaranteed. In the meantime, we do well to stay close. Live soberly. Understand. Know that the days are evil. Know that we live in a world that's teetering out of control, but we don't have to be a part of that because we serve the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Looking forward to then, when we finally get out of here and we're at home with the Lord what a glorious moment it'll be <laughs> when we arrive at our new heavenly digs, <laughs> whatever that's going to look like. Uh, and we're in the presence of our King forever. Until then, hold on. It's a wild ride. Praise God that our lives belong to Him. Let's pray. Father, love you this morning, Lord. Love you every morning. But this morning, just love the fact that your word, hard-hitting as it is in these passages, is such an encouragement to those of us who know you and love you and whose lives are hidden in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us a great burden through these things for the lost, that you would stir us up, Lord, to love and good works, that we would be of those people who would reach out who would place great value on the fact that this is all going to get wrapped up and it looks like it's going to wrap up soon. And, oh Lord, I know people in my sphere that desperately need you. Some of them don't even realize how much they need you. I pray, Father, use us. Give us a burden for the lost. Give us a burden for those who will be separated from you for eternity unless they turn. In the meantime, Father, encourage us, increase our faith, help us to be those people who are are living faithfully and abounding in love. 
You see a great example of that here with the church at Thessalonica. I pray that you would work those things in our lives as well. We give ourselves afresh to you, Father. Thank you for this divinely inspired word. Ask that you would work in us and through us in the days ahead. In Jesus' name.